Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Psychological resilience is a really important thing to build. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Firstly, that's about noticing how you feel. Quite often we come up with defense mechanisms and survival techniques when we're in environments that don't feel right that are about withdrawing or repressing or closing something down. And that's where the cost is. What real resilience or most helpful resilience is if you can say, hey, this is actually how I feel here. I'm not doing okay with this. What do I need? So when you can say, okay, this is the energy I'm feeling. This is the fear that's kicking around for me. If I could change one thing, what would it be? And then how do I work back from that to you know, adjust the things that you can control yourself? Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020. How can we reduce stress, enjoy life, bounce back from setbacks, and get in flow? My guests will be sharing their expert advice, and I hope you join me on the journey. Our theme music is courtesy of Mindstream. Visit mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep, relax, focus, and move or find their music on any streaming platform. Let's crack on with the show. On today's show, I have the author, doctor of sports psychology, and culture coach, Dr. Pippa Grange. She works with elite sports and businesses internationally, improving mindset, performance, and community. She even worked with the England football team closely during the 2018 World Cup, And in this episode, we dive into her book, which is truly brilliant, Fearless, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself. I was so pleased I read this. With a title like that, I was dying to dive in. 
So if you are ready to release your fear, you're in the right place. This episode is supported by a brand I've been a huge fan of for years, Aromatherapy Associates. I passionately believe high quality essential oils are really effective in soothing the mind and body. So to launch their latest shower oils, a line that gives you a full mind and body experience in the bathroom by maximizing the therapeutic benefit of oils, we are teaming up with them to celebrate and encourage us all to take five minutes from our day to reset, refresh, and look after our spirit. There is no easier and better way to do this than jumping in the shower. So if you'd like to find out more, and I really encourage you to do so, have a look at the show notes and you can find out more about their oils by visiting www.aromatherapyassociates.com. Anyway, let's get into this interview. So what is your favorite quote at the moment? My favorite quote is uh, a Maya Angelou quote, and it is, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. I love that quote so much. And why did you choose that one? You know, for me, I think one of the most, well, the most important part of life is the quality of our relationships. Um, And, you know, we're talking about fear and being willing to be imperfect today. And the quality of relationships is is one of your biggest weapons against that. So, you know, that, that quote for me, it's not about, you know, what you achieve, how, how well you've done, what you said and what, what the words were and how polished and gorgeous everything looked on the outside. It's what did it feel like? You know, were you genuinely connected to someone or something? And, and for me, that's the essence of all of it. What's a recent life lesson you've been reminded of? A recent life lesson, um, not, not, you know, last week recent, but in the last few years, uh, I was reminded of um, how much mental rent you end up paying if you try too hard to conform in a particular environment. It might be an environment in a organization or an environment in a family. And when you really try really hard to wedge yourself in and fit, but you just don't, uh, the cost is just too great. Um, it takes too much away. It, it bends you out of shape and it's a, not a good thing to do. It, definitely not a good thing to do in terms of, you know, spreading your wings and finding your own potential. I think it's very, very confining to try and conform so much when, when you just simply don't fit in there. How do you define happiness? Happiness for me is about mental freedom. So, you know, I've, I've met some incredible people across my career and, and a couple of those amazing stories in the book from um, Emma Campbell and Lee Spencer in particular, who've had all sorts of struggles, but their happiness hasn't been about the comfort that they've found or, or not had in life. Their happiness has been about the mental free, those moments of mental freedom that they've managed to grab in between struggles. So, you know, I think that the more that we can try and free ourselves mentally the more accessible happiness is and the more we wrap ourselves up in thinking too much um the further away it gets so it's it's not an absence of struggle or you know a desire for comfort or the thrill of winning or anything else like that it's just the freedom that you can achieve mentally 
Can I just say, Dr. Piva, you are blowing me away today. Those three no. answers are so good. I, I feel like the, I really needed to hear them today personally. And I know that my, the podcast audience will really resonate as well. But to, just to be reminded that happiness does, is not the absence of struggle, I think it's, it couldn't be more relevant, especially in the last few months we've all had, because there has been these pockets of happiness. I'm sure that everyone can identify these like positive moments that we've had in seemingly a crisis. And that just really speaks to that. And we're going to dive into her book because really when you're able to overcome fear, that really is where freedom exists. And um, Pippa's book, um, it's a brilliant title, Fear Less, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself. I really wanted to make a note of how beautiful this title was because you do go into the nuances of what we even think winning at life means and you, and you challenge our kind of preconceived views about that. Why did you want to write this book in the first place? You know what, uh, over sort of a, a long career of working with people who on the surface look amazingly successful and, and are very successful from all sorts of walks of life, including elite athletes, I just saw a repeat pattern again and again that some people with all the trophies in their hand, metaphorically, um, just still didn't feel fulfilled, didn't feel happy that emptiness that was that was inside of them really wasn't addressed by having an external achievement. Um, and I noticed this pattern again and again. And the thing that I noticed alongside it was that they were constantly afraid of not being good enough. Over many sorts of different conversations and many environments, I, I couldn't decouple those two things, that, that sense of not being enough, not doing enough, not having achieved enough, and a lack of feeling happy which just went hand in hand and fear was sort of the central culprit so I just thought well you know maybe there's something I can share here that might be useful to people in in joining the dots absolutely and every page is packed full of so much wisdom and on page 129 you write four words that hit me and it and, it, and it's simple it just says fear is an, fear is an energy and I thought that was mm. such a lovely way to describe fear I know it's quite simple but what does that mean fear is an energy sometimes I think we we talk about fear um you know just as sort of cause and effect like we talk about the things that make us fearful the stimulus or then the you know the response we have to that which I talk about in the book a little bit of fight or flight or fright etc but it's also a cultural and a personal energy. It has a tone with it. It has a facial expression and a body posture. You know, you can feel it in the room. You can feel it in an organization or in a, um, a particular relationship that, you know, it's, it's present. It's there. It's, it's prickly. It's got texture. And I think when we think about it in those terms, we start to understand it a bit more and get a grasp of it a bit more. We don't sort of try and reduce it to these mechanical ideas of cause and effect. It's like, no, this thing's kind of big and it's in all of our lives in really, really sort of pervasive ways that we um, brush to the side and ignore. But when you tune into that energy, it's like, wow, yeah, I really feel it when I'm interacting with that person or when I'm in that particular situation. My God, I feel so prickly or so 
you know, a tight or whatever it happens to be. And it's that you can really notice the energy and all of life runs on energy. So fear energy is a very strong thing um, and a wonderful thing to tune into when you're trying to see how it shows up in your own life. The one thing I did, I noticed going off that point is just by reading the book, you, you almost become better at describing your own emotions because you are so illustrative um, when you are describing the different emotions in the book. And it was, and it's so much easier to understand the emotion you're talking about because you're really creative in the way that you describe it. But that's actually a technique you use with your clients, isn't it? And, and why do you ask people to kind of talk about fear metaphorically sometimes? Firstly, I love that you picked that up from the book. It's such an important part of it, of the story of it for me. Um, and there's a couple of reasons I do that. One is that when, you know, as a psychologist or a culture coach, when I'm working with somebody else, let's say I was working with you on, on your fear or some sort of disturbing emotion that you are experiencing, you're the one experiencing it. So whatever I can describe is not going to be as rich as what you're your own experience, your own description is, you know, so, so I think that when you can hand back the authority to the person who's experiencing it to sort of say, well, tell me how that is, how's that showing up for you and not kind of prescribe, you know, allow, allow it to be a description rather than a prescription. I think that's really powerful for the client or for the other person. So that's one reason. But the other thing I talk about in the book is that sometimes when you, describe things in just clinical terms or you know you try to catch it all in language alone rather than image it's kind of like um, filling up a jar full of sand and there's too much and it's spilling down the sides you know there's more tone or more sort of feeling to it that you can't catch just in words it's got more to it and I think that using imagery um, and the imagine the rich wonderful under um, rated imagination is a brilliant tool in doing that so if you say to me, you know, well, when, I, when I'm um, in a conversation with that person, I, I start to feel really uncomfortable and, you know, too hot and claustrophobic and crushed and ooh, I want to get away. I, I don't want to be in that room in that corner kind of thing. I'm getting a real sense of, of what that pressure is like for you, as well as just a description of why that person makes you feel that way. So it's, it's, it's just so much broader and richer. And it really you know, it's such a great tool to help us understand our emotions better rather than just kind of blanketly saying, it's because I feel anxious. It's because I feel anxious. It was such a powerful education to actually get us more in tune with actually the more subtle emotions that are, are within these big umbrella terms that we often kind of like jump to. What do you yeah. think the root of fear is and why? Well, there's two things that we all experience all through life and two sort of great fears one is obviously of dying you know it's fundamental to the species <laughs> and and the other is of being abandoned and because we're one of the mammals um, on the earth that is the most vulnerable for the longest you know we're we're born absolutely helpless as infant um, humans and we're vulnerable for a really long time before we can kind of even stand or or um, express our needs in, in more sophisticated ways that other creatures can do really quickly. Abandonment or being sort of thrown out and rejected and abandoned is our second really massive fear. So they're the, t they're the roots of, of all of our fear. 
abandonment or death right and um, but they manifest in our modern life in really different ways so you know we still have that source primal fear of being rejected abandoned but it shows up now as kind of like what if i'm not lovable what if i fail what if i don't do enough to climb the ladder and be acceptable you know what if i'm not beautiful enough what if i'm not clever enough you know, et cetera. Um, and, and it manifests in this sort of, you know, need to be um, ultimately unassailable and perfect. And we know that that's a problem, right? So, you know, those fears sort of transfer now into, into our modern life in those ways too. And it's sneaky because you don't always see quite what it is that you're dealing with. So you've coached some of the world's best athletes would we be surprised by any of the fears that they had? And especially when it comes to sports psychology, how does that fear of abandonment play out there? I don't think you'd be surprised because at the end of the day, um, they're human. Yeah. <laughs> and the, you know, one of the points I'm making in the book is that we're all run by fear. It's just a question of degree, really, and, and whether we've learned how to see it, face it, replace it with something stronger and more hopeful. So athletes, like anybody else, are just humans. So they have all the same stuff going on. Some have learned to deal with it well, some not so much. The thing that might be specific to sports psychology or, or like that performance arena is that everybody's watching. <laughs> so, you know, when you stuff up or you do fail, it's in, it can be sometimes in full public view. And people can be extremely harsh and judgmental. So that, that sort of fear of being shamed or, or failing in a public way is probably amplified for performers. So interesting, because I think everyone can relate to that. Just if it's kind of you're getting ready for public speaking, obviously, that's a huge fear. And that kind of doing it in front of other people kind of like intensifies it, which kind of brings me to, you know, you talk about how environments can accelerate and, and amplify fears what things should people look out for to see whether their environment actually is fueling their fear or if it's psychologically safe let's go straight back to energy and tone on mm -hmm. this because when an environment is like that you know you could describe everything about it and say well there's nothing actually wrong on paper but you just don't feel okay there you know, so always things like um, power relationships and how things get talked about, whether it's kind of passive aggressive and a bit sneaky or whether there's a, quite a lot of gossip and, and bitching around the corner. Those things are energy things that make you feel not very safe in an environment. The way that something gets done when you think, oh, I probably need to conform a bit more here than um, people are saying out loud. You know, they, they say this is OK, but. I don't see anybody doing it. Um, mm. Those kind of things are uh, environmentally very strong indicators. We, you know, we make judgments about people within about seven seconds of meeting them. And then, and then the job is to undo that judgment rather than, you know, we will confirm it very easily. It's not so easy to undo it. So we feel environments that are fearful really quickly we're so much more in tune um, instinctively than we realize, you know, you can walk into an environment and think, and if you're tuned in, you can think, this feels a bit predatory. I can't tell you why. Nobody's said anything wrong. Nobody's, um, you know, officially offended me, but I just kind of, oh, no, I'm not so comfortable here, you know, and you should listen to that. That's information. That's a form of intelligence. 
you know, not everything can be described in a clear action of it's, it's kind of the same thing with harassment, let's say, or somebody who's feeling like they're not included. Nothing's being done necessarily overtly, but they know they're not quite where they should be. So if you had a client who um, felt like that, would, what would your advice be? Is it, you know, can the individual create enough safety within themselves that they become kind of immune to that, like quite the, the toxicity that potentially they, they just have to be in? It's like they can't leave their job. Um, but what are some strategies that they can kind of put in place if you are in the, that environment and you're trying to manage your fear better? You know, what I talk about in the book is that, yes, most certainly you can build strategies to cope, but the cost of long-term coping, if you have another option, is quite a big cost. So, you know, we have to close something down in ourselves to be able to consistently cope if the environment is genuinely toxic. Um, And, you know, my, my comment on that is, do you really have to, do you really have to be there? Or is there some fear of taking a risk or stepping out that keeps you in that environment? Sometimes, though, that might be a family, let's say, and, and you know, you're a 14-year-old kid and that's not so easy to, you know, you're not leaving at that point. So psychological safety then is, and psychological resilience is a really important thing to build. Firstly, that's about noticing how you feel right? Um, Quite often we um, come up with defense mechanisms and survival techniques when when we're in environments that don't feel right, that are about withdrawing or repressing or closing something down. And that's where the cost is. Real resilience or most helpful resilience is if you can say, hey, this is actually how I feel here. I'm not doing okay with this. What do I need? So sometimes that might be the need for renewal. You might need the kind of relation, you might find a single relationship in that environment that's just super nurturing for you and, you know, fills you back up. Um, You might need to um, recover yourself um, external to that environment. So do things that nurture you and nourish your spirit, um, bring you back to sort of your own two feet. Um, You might need to learn how to manage conflict. You might need to learn how to voice your values, you know, but first notice what's actually going on and what is the missing piece. So when you can say, okay, this is the energy I'm, I'm feeling. This is the fear that's kicking around for me. If I could change one thing, what would it be? And then how do I work back from that to, you know, adjust the things that you can control yourself? What do you mean when you write about our narratives are self-fulfilling? All of our lives are run on the basis of ideas and beliefs. The way we live our life is is all about a set of ideas that we have of of what's desirable or what's right, um, a set of stories that we write for ourselves and that other people write for us. So if you're a, a young woman, there's a cultural story written for what that means Um, And there's a personal story written for what that means. What I'm talking about in the book is that, you you know, sometimes we don't realize that the pen is actually in your hand on the personal story. Um, So, you know, we can blindly sort of follow the narrative that's been written and the ideas that are already there and the beliefs that are already there about who we should be as a woman or who we should be as a, a podcaster or a psychologist or an author or whatever else. But you actually have a lot of agency in writing the next chapter. If you want it to look different, yes, you might have to step off that comfortable platform you're on, but you can do that. 
and the pennies in your hand for, for that. So, you know, what I'm talking about is deciding what you want the story to be that you're in. Um, and some things you can't change, but attitudinally and, and you know, narrative wise, you can change all sorts of things. And it can open up so much. So I would love to now kind of explore, like, how do we lessen our fear to change our future narrative so we can start exploring lives that are completely different from maybe like what we thought was possible. And you talk about replacing fear with purpose and desire. And this word purpose, I think, is sometimes can like actually be quite pressurizing because it's like, oh gosh, like what's my purpose? What's my purpose? How do you navigate that? And what would you tell people struggling to find a purpose? And, and why do you um, suggest to replace purpose with fear? Purpose is something that's layered in over many, many years, right? Um, and I think that the distinction I make with it that I think is quite useful is you may have a whole series of goals and things that you want to achieve in life. And they're, they're very valuable. They're enriching. They're um, you know, exciting. They're they drive your attention and your behavior. Usually they're about achievement and attainment. Um, you want to go do something. Then there is this other track that runs alongside goals, which is more like that, that's what I call purpose. And usually that's about out, doing things that are outside of yourself, doing things that are beyond you and your achievement. And it's not an either or pro- proposition. It's doing both. So when you find purposeful activities or or meaning through purpose work or purpose in your life, it's more about what do I do that's beyond me? How am I serving the world outside of myself or the community outside of myself? So, you know, take this podcast. You might absolutely thoroughly enjoy doing it and you might have a whole series of goals for yourself, but there is something that you're doing for the community of your listeners that is way beyond you right? So if you're unraveling in perfection and happiness in this podcast, you're not just doing it for you. So the purposeful part of that work, it's already there. You don't have to go find it. It's already there. It's tuning into it being outside of yourself and for others, for the communal benefit, for the greater good, if you like. And so purpose isn't this like holy grail that you have to go discover somewhere of this one thing, It's just a a way that we live life that is, you know, inside ourselves and outside of ourselves. And I think maybe we've got a little bit too oriented to what's inside and personal and individual rather than outside and communal. And what do you mean about uh, replacing fear with desire? In, in that section of the book, um, all of the replace suggestions or recommendations are, are about finding something that is stronger and more hopeful to orient your attention to, to put your energy into. And I talk about dreams and desires together quite deliberately. And that chapter is about the fabulous Lee Spencer, who is the um, ex-Marine amputee who rode solo the transatlantic, which is just ridiculous for anybody, let alone somebody with only one leg. And he took 36 days off the able-bodied record, which is just, you know, what a hero he is. But he talks about having been a dreamer all his life, right? Really, really um, having big, strong dreams that he wanted to go get. And and they drove his behavior. They gave him a light on the hill always to go chase what he wanted. 
but it was it wasn't enough just to have the dream you also had to have the drive and the desire that sort of sense of spirit and character to go get it and like it's like the juice of life, the zest of life is, is your desire, right? So when you can actually feel it and you can use it to quiet and fear, desire is one of the one things that can topple fear. It overbalances the fear and it becomes more important than the fear. You give more room to the things that you really want, the things that you really think, yes, a bit more of that, please. You know, we, we let that in. And how do you suggest kind of intensifying our desires? Like what can we be doing practically to like really ramp those desires up? Like even in just getting past fear of like going to a party, for example, like how could we use desire in that instance? You know, the the method um, throughout the book that I talk about is sort of threefold. Firstly, see it, see what is holding you back, right? See your fear tune in, give it some space, stay a little bit longer than you might normally do or might prefer to, and just really acknowledge what it is. Then see what it's costing you. You've got to face it. You know, see how it's showing up in your life and what it's taking away from you, which, you know, in your example of going to a party, it might be. So I'm going to choose not to interact with a whole group of really quite interesting people or maybe not meet somebody or, you know, not spend time with my friends or not just go have a, a, a laugh that night, you know, so it's costing you something. And when you see it and face it, then you choose, what am I going to do here to make a difference to that scenario? And, you know, I talk about whether that's in that scenario, if you are ramping up your desire, you might be saying, well, what is my gain? What is in it for me? And then, you know, turn the tunes up and decide how you want to show up at the party and, and, um, allow yourself the sort of freedom to just want it and enjoy it. But I also talk in an, a different chapter about surrender. Mm. And I think that's useful here too, that sort of idea of like, what if you let go of that? What if you just let go of all of the ideals and all of the benchmarks and all of the anxieties that you drag around in a huge big bag behind you and just say, I'm just going to actually go and have a laugh. I'm actually just going to let, let rip for the night um, you know, there's such amazing power against fear in that. Again, you have the pen in your hand. You know, it's not a task to do something. It's more of a, a way of approaching it. See it, face it, choose what you want to replace it with. The one part which deeply resonated with me, because as I say to, on every introduction to the podcast, which is I'm a recovering perfectionist, what's the relationship between over-controlling behaviors and fear? For me, as you as you would have read in the book, um, the the root of perfectionism is absolutely the fear of not being enough, right? So, you know, when you explore that, perfectionism becomes a tool of fear. Perfectionism becomes a way of kind of like ramping up a sense of order and control that doesn't allow you to feel um, so vulnerable when you have vulnerability on one side, when you can be sort of, okay, this is who I am. This is how I am. This is just me in all of my authentic glory and vulnerability. There's really not a lot of space left for fear mm. because when you can be as bold and as uh, free as that to just say, Hey, this is who I am flaws and all, where is fear coming in? It's just that nagging little voice in the back of your head. that's like, I haven't got time for you right now. Go. No, you know, you, you can dismiss it because you are authentically in your own space. So 
for me, perfectionism is just a, a manifestation of the fear of not being good enough, the fear of failing. You know, it's just like control, order, you manage everything, you know, yellow sticky note, everything in your life, metaphorically, <laughs> psychologically and, and materially. And um, it steals all of your energy. It chokes the joy out of everything, you know, because it's it's got you on a, a constant treadmill of, of um, trying to avoid being not good enough. Perfectionism is a move away from not being good enough. It's a constant effort to get away from not being good enough. Whereas, you know, the things that I suggest in the replace section, surrender, laughter, dreams and desires, purpose, etc., they're a move towards what you want, not away from it. Perfectionism's a sneaky thing. We, d- we um, attribute it to all sorts of other things, but it's really got very deep roots in that sort of, you know, not good enough and inadequacy. You open the book talking about how culturally we've been indoctrinated in a culture that has, like from such young age, instilled fear in us and it was so lovely that you started it with with this because it almost kind of gives us all a kind of a mug of hot tea it says it's okay if you're fearful because it's everywhere and I would love to talk a little bit about that about kind of why we've created this binary culture of winner and loser and so where do you think this comes from and and what part does language play in in us kind of like swimming in this toxicity it's almost like we've just drifted into it. There wasn't like a, a, a seminal moment where we suddenly became overly binary or overly fearful. But I do think the fact that we've, um, you know, our culture today is one where we've really drifted quite far away from imagination and the spiritual and sort of what I call soul making and into this more linear, industrial, mechanical, measurable if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist kind of thing. And while there is obviously great utility in those things, whenever we overbalance one way or the other, we're going to have a problem. And I think culturally, we've just moved so far into this idea that we, we, we can control everything, that our psychology has gone the same way. I, I note sometimes when people are talking about managing perfectionism or managing fear, that they're, you know, it's almost like a checklist of like, did I do my 10 minutes meditation this morning? Did I have 30 minutes in the fresh air and, and earth on the grass? And, you know, all of those are wonderful things, but that's not the point. The point is, can you be present in your own life? You know, are you here? Do you feel okay with you? Um, Rather than more to do things in relation to, um, you know, Mm. that's not moving us closer to being, it's it's more doing. (laughs) You know, and I think we have a culture that's so strong on doing and not so strong on being. And I talk in the book about this idea of wayfaring, um, which was, you know, what if next year we said, I'm not going to worry about progressing and growing up or getting better. I'm going to worry about deepening. I'm going to worry about broadening. You know, so what if you took a total pivot to do something else interesting rather than that looks good on your resume or on your Insta? Or like a movement away from productive just to enjoying. Right, right. And I tell the story of sort of my running when I started distance running in you know, the first, I did my first marathon and it was great. I felt so rewarded and I was really satisfied with the effort I'd put in and then came perfectionism. 
you know, so then I had to, my religion was productivity. So I had to do more, you know, it wasn't enough. I wanted to see if I could do two and could I do a 45 K and could I do a hundred K? And then suddenly it moved into this um, way of being that was punishing and that was taking away from soul making, you know, and, and I just absolutely drifted into productivity and chore and perfectionism away from something that felt really wonderful and rewarding and satisfying. And, you know, we do this all the time in life, this idea of being rather than doing and wayfaring, deepening, broadening, rather than just always progressing upwards, I think is super powerful. I mean, I just wanted to do like a hallelujah to that point. I just think it's so powerful. And for me, it's so lovely to have a doctor talk about these more spiritual concepts because I've met so many kind of very type A characters that refuse to kind of embrace a bit more of a fluidity to life because, mm. you know, we need science to prove common sense. So we need science to prove soul making. And so it's even more impactful and more important for, you know, and so inspiring for people like yourself to say, this is grounded in research. This does help. And it's not just kind of in this woo-woo camp where people kind mm. of like, I don't know, disregard it, you know, because there, is, there isn't a number attached to it. Exactly. As you know, there's, there's so many forces in the world that are mysterious to us, including our own unconscious. You know, that's the vast part of our own psychology and we don't get it. We don't know much about it. But, you know, do we have the humility and the grace to live with mystery? I hope so, because I think that's where the richness is. And there is huge value in the data and the science and the doing, but anything overbalances if it's, you know, all that. And I love your point about the woo-woo and the alternative. There is room for both. Um, and that's why I'm such a big fan of the imagination, because when you can tell me what is your experience of something in your experience in your body, your experience in your mind, in your imagination, then that's the truth. You know, it's not my right. job to tell you whether it's right or wrong. It's my job to help you make sense of it and um, move towards what you want from it. That's it. The, the psychologist for me is, is a witness that walks next to you and tries to help you make sense. Is so beautiful, and again, that's such a really helps the destigmatizing of what a psychologist is because mm. psychology helps you make sense of your life and isn't kind of like fixing or changing, particularly. Um, have you noticed a big change in the environments that you've been working in over the last four years since we've had this big shift in kind of our understanding of your work? You know, the organization that I work with now, which is called Right to Dream, they are so open-minded. It's, it's wonderfully refreshing. But I, I think that sports psychology has still got a real problem with the alternative. I joked on a, another podcast last year uh, that working on the soul of the team on my resume, even though that's what I do, mm. I still mm. think that there's quite a resistance to it and we've got plenty of work to do. But the more that we can make it accessible and not seem like, you know, anybody who embraces the spiritual in any way is, you know, wearing tie-dye, playing a flute, sitting under a tree. <laughs> it's part of life, right? There's much we don't understand. And how wonderful is that? How rich and fantastic is that as part of a, a life experience? So I do think we've still got a long way to go in the mainstream kind of um, 
psychological disciplines like like sports psychology. It's also not a very diverse discipline. I'm excited about its future for that reason. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Pippa, because honestly, this interview has just resonated so much. So I've just loved it so much. So thank you so much for writing such a wonderful book. Um, Where's the best place for people to find you? I mean, Amazon, I imagine, is the best place to find the book. But how can people reach out or find more about you and your work or sign up for all of these different things? Well, I'm actually not big on social media at the moment, um, but you can reach me through the Blair Partnership, who are my agents. Um, and the book absolutely is on Amazon and at Waterstones. Um, you can find it with lots of sellers online as well. And it's out on Thursday, the 23rd. So very excited about that. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for having me and for all the wonderful work you do um, in helping other people just open up their view on perfectionism or being imperfect because that's what we all are and it really matters to have this conversation. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 